Hi, everybody. It's me, Jonah Goldberg. Uh, you may know me from such educational films as Zinc and You, Partners in Freedom. Um, I'm ho hosting Dispatch Live tonight. Um, uh, yes, I'm hosting it from an undisclosed location in Maine. And um, looking forward to doing this. All the other regulars, there's just slackers, and it, it fell to me. And um, their loss is, is your gain and my gain. And with us tonight, we have uh, one colleague and two friends of mine. Um, we have uh, Dispatch's own Andrew Egger. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Jonah. Thanks for having me on uh, in, in time of really nobody else to do it. And, um, <laughs> and we have uh, Andy Smerick of the uh, R Street Institute. And Man Manhattan Institute. Manhattan Institute. I'm sorry. I, it's, it's so frozen in my head. I apologize. <laughs> Uh, no problem. Uh, our street's loss is Manhattan Institute's gain, although um, I'm sure some people would differ with that. Right. Flip and, the coin. Um, uh, and we're obviously, we build this as a discussion based around, um, uh, so I'm going to call, I'm going to call Smerrick Andy, and I'm going to call Andrew Egger Egger, because that's what I call him anyway in-house and for the benefit of people listening. Um, uh, and uh I, I could also call him that filthy ginger, which is what I also call him in-house quite often. But uh, we build this as a um, as in part a conversation about um, Andy's article in National Affairs um, on subsidiarity and family policy, um, which we will obviously put in show notes. People can find it. You can Google it by literally just searching for subsidiarity and family policy. If it doesn't show up on the first page. Um, I'm going to talk to you once you wade through all of the other articles titled subsidiarity yeah, and family that's policy right. eventually but, you'll find Andy's and the, and, the, and the frankly some fairly disturbing videos and um uh but you know the the talk I would say the talk of the town except I'm not there the talk of everybody these days is the raid at raid at Mar-a-Lago um and what it all means both in terms of punditry but also some sort of from some deeper questions about uh, the nature, well, to listen to some people, the nature of our very regime is in doubt. Um, and, you know, they, they, I just listened to the editor's podcast over with my friends and colleagues at National Review, and they took the question seriously about whether or not if this investigation is not uh, up to snuff, um, that it's one of these things that it's least debatable talking about whether what it does, what it says about the regime, which is also what uh, Governor DeSantis of Florida suggests. Um, I don't like the use of the word regime for reasons I'm sure we can get into. But uh, one of the reasons I want to talk about it is because I'm sure you guys have opinions. Also, I know the audience is interested, but also uh, Andy, one of the we were just talking about, I think the second to last piece cover story for the or I should say the second to last cover story of the Weekly Standard. Um, was your piece about how our institutions were bearing up under the strains of Trump. And since whether threatens the regime or not, or calls into question the regime, it, it's certainly calling into question for a lot of people, the legitimacy of the FBI and presidency and all these kinds of things. I was wondering what you make of the whole thing. Well, generally I'm finding that the institutions themselves for the most part are holding up quite well. The question is whether or not all of the individuals who are um, populating these institutions always um, act up to snuff. And that I think 
from time immemorial, we know human beings are flawed, and so they're always going to be flawed individuals. In general, I think um, I still trust the FBI with some caveats. Um, I still trust our intelligence agency. Um, and so I think a lot of these organizations are doing uh, quite serious work. And going back to what I wrote that essay about originally, what I was so proud of is so many people behaved badly um, at the election time, but then right around January 6th. Uh, and directly after January 6th. But in general, our institutions, the state legislatures ended up doing the right thing. Important state uh, secretary of states did the right thing. So we have some people who we should be upset about, but in general, our institutions did, I think, quite well. Um, so now the question is, with this case, are we going to be able to trust the um, uh, the FBI and the, uh, the investigation that they're doing right now? Like, knock on wood, let's hope so. Uh, but time will tell. I mean, there are big questions about this uh, going into Mar-a-Lago. Man, I hope they did their homework. I hope they were um, ready for everything that's going to come out of this. We'll see. Uh, Egger, where are you coming down on it? Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree with everything uh, Andy just said. Obviously, I do think the, the, the additional major factor is um, how well the institution's are doing kind of on their on their own terms is obviously extremely important. It is also extremely important to what extent our institutions have kind of like broad social um, favorability, acceptability. People people overall tend to see things being on the up and up, and I think that is the place where we have seen the most deterioration in the past few years. The the the, the place where. Um, a lot of the different fights over over Trump and his iconoclasm have done sort of the, the most harm um, is is in the, the question of like, is the mandate for for organizations like, I mean, you, you name it, the Supreme Court, the FBI, I don't I mean a, a, any number of these kind of like uh, institutions, um, are they doing well? And then are they uh, broadly believed? Uh, to be doing well. And I think that's the that's the thing where we we already see like we we don't know. We don't we certainly don't know whether the FBI um, had the goods um, to to go in and uh, and 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 execute that warrant. Obviously that's the question we're going to find out more, a lot more about. But we do know uh, already um, that despite that, there's already been an enormous amount of speculation and and just kind of assumption uh, either on the one hand that like, ah, they got him, like it's over for him. Or on the other hand, like this is, you know, an un unbearable ratcheting up of, of, of tensions, a naked political move uh, by the part of the regime as, the, as that um, sort of vocabulary would go. Um, both of which I think is, is, is maybe may contra Andy a little bit. Um, the fact that uh, there is, so much willingness uh, based on so little information to assume such dire things about just kind of where we are uh, in the long run, potentially just as damaging to um, to those institutions themselves as uh, as actual internal uh, chicanery would be. Can I ask yeah, a question? So, go ahead. No, go ahead. Right. Uh, so I wonder like there are a lot of loud Twitter voices who are upset about the um, going into Mar-a-Lago. I wonder how representative that is of the nation as a whole, even people who just watch politics generally. Um, 
people still trust our courts. People don't have so much trust in Congress and big businesses and so forth. But law enforcement, especially local law enforcement, is still trusted by people. So um, this could be an example where we're hearing 10, 20, 30, 100 people who are just outraged about this, but they represent, you know, one, two, three percent of the population. I'm asking this more as a question, but I just want to check our assumption that a Twitter reaction represents American reaction. Um, but the second point I wanted to raise that uh, I'm having a hard time getting my mind around uh, uh, the, what do you guys call it? The secondary level podcast that you guys have, the um, advisory opinions. It's not mm-hmm. the flagship. That's um, right. That's right. Uh, it's, a, it's a niche podcast that has a, a core following around a small segment of legal nerds. A satellite that, podcast. is that Yeah. yeah. So, um, it, it, incidentally, like I would call them the flagship if I weren't talking to you, you understand how that goes, uh, uh, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they raised this question about like some of the legal issues involved with the going in. Um, but when I was listening to their podcast, the big question for me was, so I, I worked at the White House for a while. Um, and I remember what it was like to leave and the pretty tough process of disengaging from the White House. They want all of your documents. And like you may have written a note during a meeting and put it aside and it's on your desk and it's your last day. That goes in a box. That is a presidential record if you are um, part of the White House staff. So even like a lowly staffer like me, it's not all that important, but they want everything. The notes that you took, the notebooks that you had, the memos that you were drafting, all of that. So nobody's going to get all that worked up, I think, about, you know, my scribbles on um, a a note card. The question is, like, from the um, point of view of prudence of the prosecutors, Yes, the president probably took something. Well, we know he took some number of things, boxes of things. But in order for them to decide that they were going to execute a search warrant and go into his house, what I'm wondering is, was there a decision that it's just binary? If there is something there that he shouldn't have, we are going in. Or is it more of a prudential call? You know, if it was this kind of stuff, we wouldn't go in. But since we have evidence that it is this kind of stuff, we have to execute the search warrant. So everyone is asking, like, why are they going there? What I'm more interested in is, are there very particular documents that the FBI, the Justice Department, are especially interested in that he that are of such national security importance or something else, that that's the real story, that there's one or two or three documents that he absolutely should not have. Um, I wonder I wonder who's making that decision. Yeah, I mean, so I thought the Advisory Opinions podcast was fantastic on this stuff. It was very even-handed. Um, I think they make a very credible case that it is perfectly legitimate to question, not the legitimacy, but like the the reliability or the trustworthiness of the FBI when it comes to handling political issues, because they screwed up a lot of political issues in the last you know few years, either on the merits or on the appearances. We don't have to revisit all the Comey stuff, <coughs> Hillary's emails and the FISA warrants and all that. I think that's all perfectly legitimate. Um, uh, the the point, I, the, the biggest takeaway I took from that and everything else I've seen is that it can't just be that the government thinks it has a right to certain documents. If the if it is true, and I haven't seen anything disputing this, that that Trump world was nego- was still negotiating and talking, um, the going to a search warrant rather than a subpoena, right, uh, can only be justified if there were a sort of exigent circumstances. 
right? The equivalent of an emergency that this was unsustainable in a narrow frame of time because of some greater risk, either that there was something going to be destroyed or some super important classified information was going to be revealed. It can't be like, we're sick of having to argue about this. We're just going to go get the stuff um, because there were other measures short of this unprecedented thing of searching the president's ex-president's home that were available. And so this is like my friend, Andy McCarthy, another Andy, um, yep. he's got this piece in National Review arguing um, that this was pretextual, that there was a, that this is really a effort to get at stuff about January 6th under the, under the pretense that they're going for this, these classified National Archives presidential record keeping stuff. And I'm kind of with David on that. I think that is an incredibly risky strategy if you don't know that you're going to get this holy grail, silver bullet, smoking gun, whatever you want to call it. Um, so I'm a little skeptical about that. But I do think that the, from what we know, it was a difficult to comprehend decision to do this the way they did it. But we don't know a lot. The thing I just, just to put a bow on this, the reason why I don't like any of the talk, any of this regime talk, um, and this is something that is almost at this point a linguistic complaint because the the horse is out of the barn. The regime change conversation that we had about Iraq a dozen years ago um, was, um, or more than that, actually twenty years ago, right? Was um, about the entire system of government of Iraq needing to be changed. That's what the phrase regime change means. Prior to that, there was the famous first things, famous among nerds like us, first things controversy about whether or not the American regime, literally the system of government was legitimate because of its uh, its, its acceptance of, the, of abortion in America. Saying that the FBI is incompetent or corrupt or that a given president is incompetent or corrupt isn't an indictment of a, of a regime, right? It's not an indictment of the separation of powers of the constitutional framework that we live in. And I, the, the, casu the cavalier way in which people say, well, if they don't have the goods, we're a banana republic and we're no different than some Marxist socialist dictatorship is such conceptual garbage. And it's really irresponsible to tell, and this is why I think your point about Twitter, while always well taken, we shouldn't exaggerate the importance of Twitter. We have leading political figures talking about how this is this is a, a dagger at the heart of the regime. That is a failure of institutions at some level, that you have leading political figures making these arguments uncritically and unreservedly. And I think that part is actually legitimately dangerous and, and also just stupid. Um, and, you know... And the, and I think I'm going to have to write the G file about this tomorrow and then I'll shut up. But like all of these people, Marco Rubio, uh, uh, Mike Huckabee, Mike Huckabee said today, apparently, that in the wake of this, this just proves that the Republican Party should forego primaries and renominate Donald Trump as a rejection of this search of his home, right? Because of this outrage. You want to talk about, like, you want to talk about what would make us like a banana republic is to say that our populist Cordelia was disrespected 
And therefore, we have to throw away all democratic considerations and policy considerations and qualifications and all of these other things. And simply as an expression of our wounded pride, reelect this failed would be, you know, not dictator, but, you know, whatever the right term is for Donald Trump, who did try to steal an election, um, that 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 this insult to his honor is an insult to our collective, our tribe, our tribe's dishonor. That's banana republic stuff. And when just because you're saying it's in opposition to what you think is a banana republic move doesn't mean that your solution isn't even banana ear than what, what you're complaining about. Can I, I make two? Good, Edgar. It's you. It's you. Okay. Um, I just want to make two quick points about this. The first one is we need to say out loud as much as possible, talking about regime change over things like this is as fundamentally unconservative a thing that we could imagine. Uh, there is so much history throughout you know, Western civilization and, and beyond. Uh, when people start to talk like this, I mean, what conservatives are meant to do is to preserve the institutions that hold a society together in lots of invisible and visible ways, whether schools or courts or legislatures or libraries, uh, everything else. When you start to talk about regime change and you talk about wiping all these things away, starting the world anew, history is just replete with examples of how things go, not just sideways, but go really bad, really fast for a whole lots of people. So we should never entertain that conversation. We should always entertain a conversation of some of these institutions are busted. They have leadership who they're not behaving the way that they really ought to have that conversation, not the regime change thing. Uh, the, the second point I want to make is just about, it seems to me that there are lots of people who are using this language about um, broken institutions and what this means for America. And it is absolutely costless for them to do so. And there's actually a, a value to them politically. They don't pay any price um, among some of their fans for talking this way. And really what damage does it do sort of like uh, from their point of view? What's more important though, like there are people talking like that. And we saw that um, during the election time, what I always keep my eye on are, are the people who matter, who are actually in decision-making positions, doing the legitimately good, honorable, patriotic public service thing to do. Um, I don't always agree with Merrick Garland. Is he going to make the right decisions? Um, are the judges who sign this warrant or other warrants, are they going to do the right thing? Uh, are the prosecutors going to do the right thing? Talk is cheap, allow people to tweet whatever they want to. I can get upset with them, but the real test of whether or not institutions are working are, are the people who have meaningful authority, are they doing the right thing? And um, jury's out on this case, but I'm optimistic as always. And I, yeah, can I, I just wanted to make one point about the, specifically the regime language, because I think it's interesting and I think it's, it's, it offers kind of an insight into the way in which a lot of the, the, the thinkers on, I don't know, you call it the new right, call it whatever, the, the ways in which they, th th their kind of whole conceptual framework differs from what you're talking about. So it's, I mean, it's a bit of a shibboleth to talk about the, the Biden regime in kind of an easy, cheap sense, because for some people, all they mean by that is he didn't legitimately win. And he's kind of like, uh, he, he's not actually, he, he shouldn't be vested with kind of like the the, the authorities that the constitution gives the president or whatever, he's, he's a usurper of some kind. But more broadly, and I think more, more deeply, what a lot of people mean when they talk about that is um, that the whole structure that, that, that you mentioned, that 
uh, that, that when you kind of talked about our regime as the constitution and, and all of the, the rules that it puts down and, and everything that, that kind of flows out of that, their basic contention is all of that stuff just exists on paper. And, and uh, what we really have is kind of this bureaucratic, bureaucratic administrative deep state that just does whatever it wants to for itself and its friends and its allies. Um, and so when they talk about the regime, like Biden coming in is like part of that because he's, he's buds with all those people. Um, but, but it's really just the whole um, set of institutions that, that hold like ongoing bureaucratic power and ongoing like economic power and things like that. So it's, it is this kind of like class war uh, sort of thing that's that's really fundamental to their um, to the way they they conceptualize the whole thing. I was that that's not really to agree or disagree with anything you guys uh, said. I've just I've always found that that regime language fascinating. I think that's part of the reason why they why they have uh, started to use it so often. Yeah, but it's 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 also though it's there's a st- strategic ambiguity to the phrase because when when you criticize it, they go all Mont Bailey on you and they'll say. Oh, I'm just talking about the Biden administration, right? Or uh, you know, or oh, I'm just talking about you know the liberals who are the liberal elites who are in power. I don't mean the Constitution or anything like that. But then when they make their when they're having their own sort of, uh, I was going to be much more pejorative than I probably should be when they have their own conversations, um, sort of internally speaking to their own audiences, they kind of mean regime, right? And they kind of mean they, they put much more sort of a philosophical depth to it and it makes it just very it's sort of a bad faith way of sort of uh hiding behind the language um obviously this is a fantastic point to segue to andy's uh piece um on conservative policy family policy and the in the family i should note though that uh viewers all six of you um can throw questions uh, there are literally 10 times more viewers than that um i was just joking um, uh, you can put your questions into the, into the chat doohickey thing, Bob, I don't want to get all technical on you and, uh, we will do Q and a in a little bit. So, uh, Andy, um, what's your argument, um, with, uh, for subsidiarity and family policy and why do you hate Mitt Romney and want to deprive hard struggling families of the means to do better by their children. You are muted, or I can't hear you. Great question and a very fair one. So I appreciate you (laughs) uh, asking like that. Uh, Okay, so here's the nutshell of a 7,000 word um, piece of national affairs. I had personally had big questions about the right way to think about family policy over the past couple of years because you know the family is in distress. Um, we hit all-time lows in fertility rates and in um, marriage rates. Uh, lots of kids' educational um, attainment is falling. So, like, there are serious questions here. But I had seen too much, at least from my point of view, of um, call it strands of the new right who just seem to love a big muscular Uncle Sam. And there were different strands of this. You know, there's a nationalist strand, there's the integralist strand or the common good strand who would often invoke um, Catholic uh, social doctrine to do that. Um, what I call consultant conservatives who are just like sort of like modern technocrats, like um, 
sort of like the best men of the progressive era or the new deal or great society, you know, smart, uh, well-educated people who think that if they're in positions of power, they can just turn the knobs the right way on the federal government and get the results that they want. So all of these strands of the new right seem to believe deeply um, that a more powerful federal government was the answer to a lot of these questions. And while I was asking myself questions about the right way to think about family policy, what I wanted was a framework to say, how can I take family, morals, ethics, like the structure of society seriously, while at the same time taking seriously this idea that limited government isn't just a matter of Hayek or Montesquieu or Madison. Um, it has a moral basis as well. And so I think subsidiarity does that extraordinarily well. Um, so for any of your uh, viewers who don't follow papal encyclicals, the shorthand is this Catholic social doctrine is um, a way of thinking in the Catholic church that has developed over a couple centuries uh, that reflects- More than that. a couple centuries, no? I mean, is it, is it only a couple centuries? There's debate about this. Some people say it goes back to the beginning. Some people say Aquinas. Some people say um, more medieval stuff. Certainly since the late 19th century, um, when they- uh, Pope started writing about uh, what we would think about, like the size of the state, the role of the family, this stuff really, a big encyclical was 1891. This is a book length document written by popes. This is what encyclicals are. Um, over this period of time, the Catholic Church has built a a doctrine, a set of beliefs and principles about how individuals should interact with one another and families and mediating institutions and so forth. And one of the principles is subsidiarity. And a lot, a lot of people think of it as decentralization. It's actually deeper than that. It's saying that no one delegates anybody power. Individuals have rights and responsibilities. Families have rights and responsibilities. Uh, voluntary associations, states, local governments, they all have their different spheres of influence, both what they have to do and what they have the power to do. And so what subsidiary says is you respect all of the different domains that they have. Um, you don't, you make sure that they do what they're supposed to do and that they don't encroach on what others do and that they give support to one another when they're in need. So all of them can work together to have a healthy society. So we have social justice and we can advance the common good. What is interesting about this is there are some people now invoking Catholic social thought as though they can just say the common good. And as long as you're invoking the common good, that allows you to put forward and defend any kind of like big government plan, but subsidiarity, like there are more than a century worth of documents saying, no, that's not the way this works. Um, families have certain rights and powers. Local governments have certain rights and powers. And we have to limit big governments and big corporations from encroaching on all of these different spheres of influence we have. So it is a check on these big institutions of society. And so I brought this to bear on family policy because I wanted a way to talk to people who cared about families, who were on the uh, right side of the political spectrum and often cared about Catholic social thought to talk to them about, listen, there is a fundamental part of Catholic social doctrine that is telling you something that is not part of your narrative right now, which is Catholic social teaching tells us that we have to distribute power. And just because you want to get something done doesn't mean you can um, acquire power at the highest levels and then just push it through. That's not what subsidiarity says. So, Edgar, why do you hate Andy Smerick and think he's <laughs> wrong about everything? I don't have I don't have anything against Andy Smerick. I don't have anything against the, <laughs> the, the, the principle of subsidiary. I'm not even Catholic. This is some internal fight, you know, that I don't have, have a real beef with. I do. I do have. Some, You're like Lutheran, right? 
I, I'm Lutheran. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Because like, Luther, Lutherans have no issues with Catholics. It's that like it, they're totally invisible to Catholics. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Well, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna breeze right on by I, that. <laughs> I'm just I'm just stirring the pot as a you know as a deracinated you know semi Jew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I no. I mean, I think I think it's it's. Uh, I mean, what 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 do you want me to say? I I, I find I find it interesting. I mean, I, I do think it it in a lot of ways just kind of resembles. Uh, I, I guess it's as I was reading it, I was basically just just seeing kind of like what I grew up seeing as as it's just kind of like re- relatively boilerplate. Um, conservative speak on on the the importance of preserving the 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 levels of actual decision making at at different at the the thick social level at the the local and 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 state government level and not doing all policy at the federal level i i had never i had never previously connected that to uh to to catholic social social teaching um so the reason why it was just outrageously suggesting that Edgar um, hates you and everything that you stand for uh, is that uh, um, you have pointed criticisms or concerns, reservations um, about Mitt Romney's plan to basically just write checks to families um, sort of as a, you know, uh, almost a uh, universal basic income model for people with kids. Um, so what are your, how does that tie in with, with the problem? How does that run again? How does that pet the cat the wrong way um, for someone who believes in subsidiarity? Well, um, at the very end of my essay, I, after going through all of these encyclicals, all of this research that people have done in writing on um, on Catholic social doctrine, I come up with six rules of thumb that I think are important for policymakers to think about if they care about subsidiarity or um, even if you're not Catholic and you don't want to think in those terms, just rules of thumb that can guide your thinking about which institutions ought to do what and without um, going through all of them. It's like, it's like you have to identify that there's actually a problem. We can't have the federal government just freewheeling doing whatever. We have to make sure that proximate bodies are giving support, not just um, always deferring to Uncle Sam. Uh, we have to make sure, and this is my favorite one, that the kinds of supports that are given, like if an institution, a family is failing or nonprofits are failing, um, a higher level body needs to provide support, but it has to be rehabilitative. It has to be the, the, um, the types of interventions have to help that institution get back on its feet so it can do its job. And after going through this analysis of these six different points, it's pretty clear to me that the Romney plan is uh, good in spirit, but uh, just runs afoul of five, if not all six of these principles. And Andrew, I'm sorry, Edgar, um, why is it that you have a giant Romney family plan poster above your race car bed? So I, I I do hate to skip all the way to the end of of, of your essay like this because it was I mean, like I said I I did have a really good time just kind of recontextualizing all of this um you know stuff that that I the the sort of common conservative critiques of of welfare policy that have been around for 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 quite some time within this I guess richer um um conceptual frame um the 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 big question that i had as i was reading through the whole thing is um i think that that, that there's a very strong sense in um 
in, in the whole development, not necessarily of the, of the doctrine of, of subsidiarity in and of itself, but, but in, insofar as it is applied um, to welfare policy in, in a lot of these things that, um, well, it's, it has to do with welfare policy. It's, the, it's, it's, it's these questions that all, that all kind of, um, <clears throat> um, that all essentially just have to do with what are the things that, that we as a society owe to the least fortunate and the most vulnerable among us. Um, the thing that I have found interesting about the latest um, kind of batch of, of thinking uh, that's like pro uh, the Romney package pro family policy, but basically a lot of the family policy just, just kind of writ large that that's the kind of stuff that you're critiquing is that it all essentially rejects the notion that, that we, that we should be seeing this as like welfare at all. The, 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 the idea is not that, um, that families are sort of like uniquely vulnerable and thus like uniquely in need. Um, although you could probably make that case, um, because it's expensive to have kids, as we all know. Um, the 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 point that they essentially are making is that there are real like n- the state, <laughs> our, our, the nation has has like increasingly pressing needs um, that that are w- whether whether that's just you know the fact that birth rates are are too low or or just the the very bald simple fact that um, you know continuing economic growth and prosperity requires a next generation of, of workers uh, and innovators and, and, and all of this. Um, essentially, the argument is predicated on the fact that this is not welfare. This is, uh, in a sense, just the state attempting to subsidize what is ultimately like pro-state behavior, ultimately uh, uh, useful for the ongoing flourishing of the polity. Um, and I, I just wonder whether that, ha- whether you by that, whether you think that that is essentially just a dodge to to get around a lot of the um, the like kind of traditional conservative distaste for like uh, strengthening the welfare state, what, what what you make of all those arguments in general? Well, one of the things that I learned, maybe the biggest thing I learned through reading all of uh, these ancient documents and sort of making sense of the literature, is. Like, I am even now a bigger fan of welfare properly understood than I was before. I've always, uh, as a Catholic, as a compassionate conservative, as a capacitating conservative, I've always believed in it. But Catholic social doctrine, subsidiarity is very clear. If people or institutions are in need of aid, it is absolutely incumbent on those who are able to give aid to do so. So I believe in um, absolutely an insurance uh, uh, I'm sorry, unemployment insurance, in uh, welfare programs, all of these things, they are an example of someone in need who can't help themselves, who needs help, and so a bigger institution should do it. What's important, though, is subsidiarity tells us how to think about that. Um, and Pope John Paul talks about this repeatedly, Benedict, some of the um, older popes from the early part of the, the middle part of the 20th century, they say, always make sure that you do not do something that steals the responsibility, steals the energy, steals the initiative of any entity. You have to always keep in mind that all of these uh, parts of society have responsibilities of their own. So when you give support, it always has to be with a mind towards rehabilitating them, getting them back on their feet, helping them do what they need to do as quickly as possible, 
your aid is temporary. And so I'm as a big a fan as ever of nonprofits helping those in need, local governments, states, but it is an entirely different question, like what Romney did or a UBI plan, or even the Biden approach, which says in perpetuity, we are going to give free checks to everybody who has kids for as long as they have kids, a monthly check, whether they need this money or not, whether they're poor or not, we're just going to give them this money because it's not temporary in this case. It's not rehabilitative. It's not saying they're in need. And so we're going to get them back on their feet. And if anything, um, to Scott Winship's points and all, all the folks who fought the welfare um, fights of 1995-96, there are work effects of free money from Uncle Sam that we need to be mindful of. So this is a long way of saying, let's make sure that we're supporting those who need it, but do so in a way that we respect their responsibilities, their duties, their powers. And I think just a big um, check cutting effort uh, like the Romney plan just gets a bunch of these basics wrong. So I should say his part two of his plan was better than part one, but I still wouldn't support part two. So the, you know, for viewers who are sort of confused about some of this stuff, um, I, the way I always view the principle of subsidiarity is that um, love is a personal thing. You cannot love abstractions. Mm. You can be fascinated by abstractions. You can be concerned about abstractions. Uh, you can be very worried about abstractions. But like, um, I cannot love for someone I've never met who's a thousand miles away that the only things I know about them are the their Wikipedia page, right? I mean, like I could be infatuated, I could be obsessed, I could have all sorts of disordered feelings about them. But the simple fact is we love who we know. Um, doesn't mean we'd love everybody we know, but we only the only people we love are the people we know. Um, taking our feelings towards God and Jesus and all those things out of the equation, it's a matter of theology. And when you love somebody that you know, right? So stipulated that you can only love people that you know. You have to know their names, obviously, right? You have to know who they are as an individual person. You can help them enormously, but you also have a sense of what help is counterproductive. So like, you know, you can, you can lend your cousin or your brother or your, you know, your nephew money, but that money comes with strings attached because you can also lecture them and say, okay, I gave you the money. First of all, when are you pay me back? And second of all, when are you getting off the couch? When are you looking for a job? Um, you know, when are you going to buy that suit? Uh, when are you going to, you know, get your hair cut? All these kinds of things. You can do that with people that you love because there's this understanding that you're doing something out of concern for them. The further away you move from the interpersonal, from, you know, the Gemeinschaft shaft to the gazelle shaft, um, the more people, the more limited it is the things that you can do for them that are catered to them as individuals. And you're starting to see them as categories or classes of people, right? And so the government is very good at writing checks to people, but just as a fact of logic, those checks are going to help some people and they're going to be sort of the worst thing that ever happened to other people because people there's an ultimate diversity of, of, of characters and personalities and situations. 
And so the more you can have aid and support at a level where people know the people they're helping and can therefore have different approaches for different individual personalities, the more effective it's going to be. And if, But if you try to do everything from 30,000 feet, it's like when you look out the window on a plane, you can't differentiate the individuality in anybody. But if, if you're the local parish priest or if you're a local social worker or a local or a school teacher, school teachers know the students in their classroom better than they know the students in a classroom a thousand miles away. Exactly. And the whole point, whole point of subsidiarity to me is you want to push the decision making down to the responsible people who have an emotional and knowledgeable investment in the individuals that they're trying to help. Can I add two things to that? I agree with everything sure. you said, but um, Catholic social teaching also has this um, uh, brother or sister concept of subsidiarity called solidarity. And um, Benedict has some great lines on this um, uh, as is Pope John Paul II, but it gets at this exact thing. So it's not just that um, decentralizing power will allow people to be more compassionate and to tailor um, certain interventions in better ways. It's that we all, through solidarity, have a responsibility to everybody. The three of us here, we can't have equal responsibility to someone who is in Taiwan right now or someone who's in Poland. You feel solidarity with, and you're able to help people who are closest to you. And so we have responsibilities to our families first and then to our communities. And that is where we can give of ourselves, according to Catholic social thought, that we have a responsibility to participate is the word that they use, to give of ourselves. And this is what the common good is all about, social justice, participating with one another to help one another. And it's not just this responsibility that we have to help one another. It's that by virtue of doing that, we have a more solidaristic community and state and nation when we behave in this way. You can't really have solidarity on a bunch of different domains with 330 million people who you've never met before, but you can feel solidarity. And that means safety and a sense of meaning and shared traditions with your town, with your community. So what subsidiarity and solidarity are trying to do is make sure people get their support, but also build this fabric of society that a town means something, that a state means something. And you don't get that from, I don't know, the treasury department cutting checks um, to families every month just so they have more money. More money is helpful, but that's a whole lot different than someone showing up in your doorstep and saying, I know you need help. My nonprofit is here to help you. Or the local government saying, we know we need to um, plus up our soup kitchen or our opioid addiction recovery programs. These are two very different ways of thinking of it. And I respect uh, Senator Romney a great deal for trying to be inventive on this stuff. But what I would just encourage him and some advocates of these programs to think about is progressives often do things that can separate society. So it's just the state and the individual and weed out all that stuff in between. And when you have a program where you just have these gigantic checks coming from Washington and you build this relationship between the beltway and individuals, what does that mean for everything in between? Let's think about state level family policy, local level family policy, a community nonprofit family policy, instead of just checks, just checks don't do a whole lot. Can I just say, I, I, first of all, I, I agree with basically all the analysis that, that you guys are, are doing as far as like general, general principles of, of kind of negative externalities of, of welfare. Right. Um, of, but, but, but I guess I'm just the, the, 
the thing that I'm trying to, to, to wrap my brain around here is that it, it seems like the, the thrust of all these policies, again, is not so much that, that families are in, are, are, are in real need and this is, them, this is the state throwing them a bone to assuage that need, but in reality, that need would be better met at a different level. It seems to me that kind of for, for, for a lot of the policy thinking about things like this, the, the, or, the, uh, the organization that is in a position of need is the state. It's the, it's the state that's in need. It's the state that's in need of more people because we're not having them at, at, at like replacement levels. And that's like a, a real kind of generational policy, like, like, like a civilizational concern. Uh, and, and, and so I just wonder if all of this, I mean, like to me, the closest cognate to, um, to the kind of thing Romney's proposing isn't like other welfare programs at all. It's like, it's, it's essentially like industrial subsidies, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's saying that like, we need, we need more, <laughs> uh, we need more domestic production. Edgar's uh, going full Handmaid's Tale on us. No, I mean, like, it's, <laughs> I, I, it, that, that is, I mean, if, if, if you care that, that, that birthright, that birth rates are low here and elsewhere, um, and you think that that's a thing that like should be reversed, I think that's the main policy thrust. And obviously like it, it, it is also the case that it is, that it's, you know, uh, the, the other the other important plank of it is that it's the, the the work of having and raising children is one of the most important kinds of labor that it is that is not uh, economically remunerative. You're not you're not getting anything out of out of the market uh, for for doing that. Um, and so you know it's it I, I I just think all of this logic of of like people in need. Um, where, where, where you're like short shrifting them. Um, if you, uh, you know, if, if you are not attaching the, the need to like really encouraging some major lifestyle changes in, in one way or another, all of that's kind of predicated on this, this vision of welfare as, as like people who've really fallen off the path. Right. Um, but, but I, but I do think that like kind of the, the, it's an important part of the policy thought for guys like Romney, that we're not talking about people who have fallen off the path. We're talking about people who are doing a thing that, that we want them to do. And we actually want more people to get into this class. And that's why, that's why it's important that we, that we be, be doing this. Right. I mean, like it, it is not a, it's not a bad thing in, in Romney's opinion for, for more and more and more people to hop on the bandwagon, like we would think for, for, for more and more people to hop on unemployment or food stamps or something like that, just because of the benefit. That's kind of the point of the benefit. What do you think, both of you, um, if you could have one of two options and your goal is to increase American fertility rates because we are below replacement rate, replacement rates about 2.1. I forget the last number. I think we're between 1.7 and 1.8. There are some other European nations that are lower than that. Um, And somebody said, okay, you can do one of two things. Uh, Send every family that has kids 300 bucks um, per month from Washington, D.C., $300 every month until they're 18. Or we can go about a set of federal, state, and local policies that actually takes seriously the idea of uh, a true society of solidarity, where we make sure that nonprofits are, are meaningful and care about one another, that people are volunteering locally, that they are taking care of their neighbors, that they're giving to the PTA, that they're running for office and helping the school board. That is, the question I'm asking is, 
which do you think is more likely to create the conditions for healthier families? Monthly checks from Washington or the kind of society that more families want to raise children in? I mean, I, I personally think that as like a thought experiment, your, your point's well taken. I mean, obviously, we would want to see the latter option correctly understood. Um, and it's hard, it's hard to do, conceded. Well, yeah, I, mean, I just think, I think the devil would be in the details and for, 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 for a lot of it. And I think part of, part of the, the reason why there is a surprising number of like small government people who actually kind of like the Romney plan is because the currently situated system for, for you know, poverty reduction among families, the, the, the temporary assistance to needy families program, um, which, which already kind of tries to bake in a lot of the, the checks and, and, and the, 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 the carving, carving outs and the, some of the sort of stuff you mentioned is just, is just kind of really badly administered and it's kind of Byzantine to, to, to apply and get in and people don't really know whether they qualify and things like that. And the, the idea and requires a sort of a, a small bureaucracy to, to make it function and things like that. And I think that the, the idea, I guess, is that if, if your choices are, you know, the, the, the one or the other, maybe something like a month, uh, a, a monthly cash payment is just like a push factor in one direction, but it doesn't actually like do all of that much, all that much to, to, to sap away at and destroy the kind of things you're talking about, which, which I agree, I mean, are ultimately what is most important. Um, I guess I'm, I'm just, it's just not incre- incredibly clear to me that, that, you know, the Romney plan as opposed to over and against TANF or the Romney plan, as opposed to over and against the current partially refundable child tax credit, that there's like a real and present danger to civil society baked into that. Um, I, I guess I would, I guess I just don't, it, it, it's hard for me to conceptualize what that danger is. For what it's worth, if I were elected governor in this um, upcoming election, I would be the nation's leading Republican governor on family policy at the state level, um, saying that we need to make sure that our state is the friendliest to families and we are going to try a whole host of things. Um, child tax credits, um, things related to schools, things related to transportation, um, sort of the whole host of things, but making sure that local governments and nonprofits, I would do everything to beef up our civil society. And what's remarkable is um, all of the talk about family policy, and let's just say 95% of the talk of family policy at the federal, uh, the, from the right over the past couple of years has been federal family policy proposals. I would love to see some portion of this energy actually take seriously some of these ideas about a check from the Department of Treasury isn't going to do the same thing as a hug from a nonprofit leader or that local government making sure that the soup kitchen is there or the addiction rehab center is there or that there is a great set of school options. I would love for some set of Republican governors to take on this family issue. Um, I'm not seeing it yet, but um, let me just put a, a flag in the ground on that one. And, and so clearly now there's a huge, I'm sure it's trending on Twitter already, Smerrick's running. running. <laughs> um, uh, all right, so we, we don't have a lot of time left, and I got to get to the questions. Um, the first one I got was from Peter, who asked, would a GOP-controlled Congress, both houses, uh, next year make Romney's child tax credit plan more likely to become law? Punditry, go! Um, did we did we ever actually discuss? I, we might not have even brought up yet what the actual difference is between Romney one and Romney two. So let me just say that real quick. Uh, I, I guess it was about a year ago that it I was. It was Romney one has like Romney in the old country, 
um, growing up and then coming over to Ellis. Oh, sorry, different thing. Go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you got you got any more? You got any more? I uh, no. It, it, uh, I'm sure. Yeah, I do. it was it was when we were fighting over Biden had just been elected. They were fighting over um, you know what was going to go in his big stimulus bill. He had this this uh, child allowance, and Mitt Romney kind of came out of nowhere with this counter proposal. Um, that would that'd be mailing checks to families. It'd be fully paid for by eliminating the the salt uh, deduction, um, state and local tax deduction, uh, and 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 basically eliminating TANF and uh, and TANF. just all sorts of other things. Yeah, um, I know. Tell people what TANF is. Sorry, what, what I talked about before the, the temporary assistance for uh, temporary assistance for needy families. Basically, the program that already exists to try to funnel uh, federal money to the neediest uh, uh, families in America. Um, it, there it had no work requirement at all, um, and uh, and it would have kind of replaced the child tax credit as well. So it rolled all these things into basically one monthly payment. It didn't uh, it didn't go anywhere, uh, and other Republicans basically all ran away from it because it was not there was no work requirement attached to it at all. Um, fast forward to a couple months ago, now uh, he had Romney released a an updated version of the package. It has a work requirement attached now, although it is still not quite as punitive to the poorest people as the currently situated child tax credit is. Um, it, basically, it scales up linearly um, for the first $10,000 a household makes in a year, as opposed to just having like a threshold um, where you, that you have to hit to qualify for any of it. Um, and it's it's been better received. Um, it's, uh, I think, it was, was it Steve Daines who co-sponsored it, Senator Steve Daines? Um, kind of a major center. It's it's it, I, I, it's an open question whether there's going to be uh, significant Republican energy behind it. I actually don't know. Have you, Andy or Jenna, have you guys seen whether, I mean, uh, I, I think Marco Rubio and Mike Lee, who were two big names as far as expanding the child tax credit the last time it was expanded during the fight over the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, they came out and deliberately kind of said, we don't like this the first time around. And I, I reached out to those offices the second time um, to figure out what where they were on it, but they were they were not they were playing things close to the chest at that point. I don't know whether they still are. I so, haven't heard. Okay. Yeah, that that's a good question. So just open. I mean, I guess just an answer to the question then. Uh, open question. I mean, I think I think it's more palatable to Republicans than it was before, um, with more of a work requirement than it had before. It's less of a dramatic deviation from the. Uh, from the currently situated. It's kind of funny. It's it, it much more strongly resembles the current child tax credit, even though like at a conceptual level, it is very, it, it, it's like a whole different set of kind of like policy assumptions to get to almost the same place as the child tax credit as it but, currently exists. But I mean, I, I don't want to get too deep in the congressional punishment or the political punishment here, but isn't the real question whether Biden would sign such a law? Let's just say it passes both houses of Congress controlled by Republicans. Doesn't that does that make it more like? I mean, it depends. I guess if it would need to be well. Yeah, so that's the other question: is what the vehicle would be for it? Because you would you. It's really hard to imagine something like this passing as a standalone. Even the last expansion of the child tax credit only came around because Rubio found a place to kind of like make a pain point for a must pass bill, which was the the big uh, tax bill for Trump in twenty seventeen. Um, and I, I don't. I mean. And if anything, it's kind of in a weaker position now than it was then, because that was one of the big, I mean, that's basically the only major or one of the biggest things that Biden didn't get into the most recent infrastructure bill. 
in in the Schumer deal with with Manchin um, was the was that they all kind of assumed going in that that would be one of the most popular provisions in the the 2021 stimulus, um, but then couldn't ever get uh, Joe Manchin on board for any version of that, and it fell by it fell on the cutting room floor. So I I mean I am I imagine if they found some kind of vehicle that that Biden would have an appetite for making something like this permanent, um, but I just I mean. I, I, I don't know what exactly that vehicle would be. Can I just add one thing to this? Um, it's an important part of the history, or at least the past year or two of this, which is um, Romney's plan came out and it seemed to get a little bit of momentum and lots of elite institutions, editorial boards, um, left of center, big institutions thought that this was fantastic, that it was obviously the right thing to do. Um, the American people weren't so hot on it. And then a couple of surveys came out um, asking about it. And it changed the mind of a lot of like right of center people uh, who had been supporting it. Do you know who had the most misgivings about the kind of uh, universal basic income style program as opposed to tax credit, which is no work requirement. You just get this monthly check. The people who are most opposed to it, middle class and working class people. They were the ones who thought there needed to be a work requirement. They wanted people to have skin in the game. So while all these more elite people were saying, well, obviously this is a charitable, good American patriotic thing to do. No, people thought, no, we don't want this to turn into, you know, a pre-TANF, pre-1996 welfare style program where the federal government's just handy. And so I think this was a big part of the calculus in changing the Romney plan from one to two to have at least some kind of work requirement. I think ultimately the inhibition for a lot of voters and then representatives is going to be, does this feel like it's just Washington sending checks to people like we had from, say, 1965 until 1996 in the welfare program, where we're disincentivizing work, where we're confusing what families should do with what the federal government should do? I'm not bullish that this can go very far. Like, I think the Romney Lee, I'm sorry, the Rubio Lee approach of a traditional child tax credit that isn't refundable in the Romney style way is the way to go on this. So I, I, I want to, I, I feel bad about skipping a couple of questions, but this is one that I, I was thinking about quite a bit and I've thought about quite a bit over the years. Um, Tracy asks, can the government really be effective in promoting fertility? Are people thinking about their tax returns when deciding to start families? Um, and I think I'm very pronatalist. I want more babies. Babies are good. Is the, the official family policy at the dispatch is babies are good. Um, very good parental leave for which I'm very thankful. I had a baby on your parental leave and was very, I liked it. Thanks for that, Jonah. Our parental leave. But anyway, uh, um, uh, yeah, no, I, I want to live in a country where there's just a lot of kids running around. Um, very in favor of it. Um, I'm inclined to think that uh, Andy Smerick's point about how putting money into the infrastructure of society that makes it easier, more fun, more sort of mainstream to have kids is a better way to do it than to write a check for people. But like, if if Lyman Stone's right, no one's figured out a way to sustainably uh, boost fertility um, over a long period of time. I mean, there's some really interesting examples of short-term things. Like there, I, Lyman was telling me once about a, I 
think it's in Armenia. I don't want to mess it up. There was some very popular archbishop. I don't want to, not the Pope of the Armenian church, whatever it is, but it's a very high level uh, Armenian religious figure who said he would baptize any baby born within some like 18 month period. Like every single one, he would show up. And you saw this big spike in births because that was this sort of thing where people wanted to be able to say their kid was baptized or whatever by this guy. You know, Hungary had this very brief period where it worked and then it didn't work. Um, so like if you, if either of you who are much closer to having fresh babies than I am, uh, and there's nothing that smells better than a fresh baby. I just want to be clear about that. Um, uh, under the right circumstances. Um, if you had your druthers, like what would be a government policy at any level of government that encouraged people to make more babies? I think that this is one of the most interesting and difficult questions of our time. And I don't agree with Lyman on everything. And I think he and I uh, take different positions on some of these policy issues. Uh, but his work has really influenced my thinking about um, I'll just call it the technocratic approach that it seems intuitive. People, if we want folks to have more babies, well, let's make it easier through money. And so some of these Hungarian or other European examples of um, forgiving loans or sending checks or helping them buy houses. This feels to me like a 1960s American or 1930s American way to do it. Well, federal government should just pay for this and it'll just happen. Um, Jonah, what you've often said before about other things is we have to be careful about over-determining or under-determining big social phenomenon. There are lots of different reasons why young people today um, in their 20s, say, are not having kids at the same rate. And some of those reasons apply to some young people and some don't. Um, it, it's a hodgepodge. Like some surveys say that there's a non-trivial percentage of young people who don't want to have kids because they're concerned about the climate, climate crisis. Um, there are others who think that they'll never be able to um, own a house that's going to be big enough. There are others who think that it's going to cramp their professional styles, all of these different reasons. These are social factors that are intertwined and so hard to figure out what the roots are. I think that we could spend a whole lot of money and a whole lot of time sending checks out to people, thinking it's gonna solve this problem when there are these underlying social conditions that are much more difficult. So this is why I keep going back to, can we have state and local and civil society programs that can be tailored to communities, actually listen to people to figure out how you get civil society communities to be receptive places for families so families can solve this for themselves as opposed to this, oh, well, we have the right people in Washington, D.C. who know which knobs to turn to increase our um, fertility rate from 1.8 to 1.87. I just don't think big social phenomenon like this uh, respond to that kind of tech. Agar, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, well, I think I, I think I made it clear. I, I do like the Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney plan. <laughs> I would, I would, <laughs> I'm in favor of, no, I mean, I, 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 and I, I agree with everything Andy said. I mean, I think that that obviously there's there's you know a million civilizational um, pressures one way or the other um, for this sort of thing, and and there's there's no you know magic bullet to 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 hit our target our 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 target quarterly um, you know baby <laughs> quotas. Um, but uh, I, the another big thing that 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 does seem like a real a real choke point to me is is the the leave question, the actual like having of the baby is like sort of a, a 
uh, a pain point among among a lot of people particularly like it's particularly like the sort of thing where like the people who are like professional class and probably could afford not to have a ton of like paid leave are like the ones who are most likely to get the paid leave anyway and it's um i i it seems like encouraging that that uh um there's there's more of a push toward i don't know whether like subsidizing uh uh paid leave trips your same kind of danger signals andy as this the other stuff we've been talking about um but i wouldn't wouldn't be super averse to seeing that either yeah i mean i I mean uh, andy you might know this and we're running out of time but i'm i'm legitimately curious about this i am as as egger attested we are pro family leave you know uh, all that parental leave but europe has a lot of parental leave and their fertility rates are worse than ours right and is there any evidence that giving people time off to deal with new babies, which again, I'm very in favor of new babies, uh, actually encourages more babies? I mean, have you seen anything that suggests it? Because it's weird. It's it's something that everyone talks about because they're in favor of it for all sorts of legitimate reasons, motivated reasoning, confirmation bias, all the rest. Also, I think there's an objective argument that it's just a good thing to do but does it actually create an incentive structure for more babies and i, I if it yeah, did the, you would think france would have a lot more babies that that's right uh there's been some research on this and um i think some of it um is equivocal some uh can go in either direction but none of it has had that you and I probably would have guessed it could have, or like its advocates would have, which is if this was really the problem, it should have led to a massive spike in births and it just hasn't. And one thing we haven't talked about is along these lines, one of the most interesting debates here is if a society during um, some sort of leave or child care program, um, especially infant care, essentially that is a subsidy for two worker families um, if the government is going to pay uh, for you to send your kid to child care so both families can work, that's like the government making a decision that that is the preferable mode for families to operate in. And increasingly, there are a lot of families, and it was a majority in the last poll I saw, who actually said, no, if they had their druthers, they want one parent to work and one to either stay at home or only work part time. And so then the question is, more elites may like the dual earner with child care subsidies of Americans would prefer if there's going to be money to um, be had on this issue that you just distribute it to families that you don't privilege those with two working parents as opposed to uh, a family that only has one. And that raises all sorts of questions, which is, do we want a society where we say out loud that we're going to privilege two workers, one worker, um, or are we going to be on the fence about that? And what does the policy look like? But that's an issue that has raised in prominence over the past five years that I wouldn't have guessed 10 or 15 years ago. I find that compelling. I withdraw. I withdraw the paid leave thing. (laughs) Paid leave only for dispatch employees from now on. Fair enough. Well, no, no, look, part of the problem is is like, like, I'm not trying to like make sweeping statements about your family planning issues, but like, I think you're going to have more babies. I think you would have more babies even if we didn't have generous family leave, but it'll be easier for you to have more babies if we have generous family. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think insofar as there's a good argument for leave, it's not the one that I articulated before, but it's really just that it is, I mean, talk about need. Um, But yeah, the idea that that you send any, that anybody would have to, 
go back to work like a week after having a kid is like remarkable to me. I mean, a lot of people. I, I just saw data that Brad Wilcox um, put out. Um, I don't, can't remember if it's from his institute or if he was just publicizing it, showing that there is a growing gap in fertility rates in America between people of different faith practices. The more you go to church, your fertility rates are much higher. People who go to church, you know, once a month, it's pretty much in the middle. Those who aren't um, affiliated with the church or aren't going all that much, those are the ones that are way below replacement level. So this goes to this question of like, what are the factors that are leading people to make these decisions about fertility? And I'm not saying that faith or being part of faith community is a cause, but it's at least correlated at this point. And so what is the policy to encourage people to be um, more faith-based or practice faith more in order to have um, bigger families? Like These are the kinds of things that we have to think about um, and ask ourselves, is a check from Washington going to make, make the difference here? Again, I wouldn't have, I don't think that 50 years ago, the data that I've seen would suggest that there was nearly the kind of gap between um, wealthy, not wealthy, having kids, religious, non-religious. Um, some people are now saying that having kids is like, I would say, a luxury good. We're seeing more educated people and uh, wealthier people making decisions about marriage that are different. So there's some social factors happening here that um, are confounding. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I mean, I promise everybody, all four of you, um <laughs> we're about to close but the correlation thing is is a really problematic thing because you don't want government funding the thing that is just the correlation rather than the core thing right so like uh, you know tom soul makes this point that um you can make all sorts of amazing statements about african american families where people have where the family has a library card now, that shouldn't necessarily be an argument for subsidizing libraries enormously, because the point is, is that there's a certain kind of family with bourgeois values that gets library cards. In your piece, you talk about how um, uh, white kids from single parent families do worse than black kids from two parent families on average, right, statistically. That tells you that the over the the emphasis on institutional racism and all that kind of stuff is is missing some important variables. I just put it put it that way. But you got to be careful about like, oh, I found this really strong correlation with X, so therefore I'm going to spend money on the stuff that I that I think is going to like subsidize or, or encourage the thing it's correlated with when there that may not work at all and i i just don't know how you tease this stuff out i would love to know you know and i think there's a place for it i'm not quite a, quite sure i agree with eggers sort of the state needs needs more babies to fuel industrial capitalism stuff but Fed, you know 30% <laughs> in chest 30% um, anyway um caleb tells me that the bulk of the questions were about my hair um, I assume this is partly because I got a haircut and partly because I have this famous problem with this widow's peak thing that makes it look like I have hair plugs. I do not. Um, and also I'm sweating like a fat man in all you can eat pasta bar. And then the other big core portion of questions were about Edgar's mug. So the, and so I can't answer questions about my hair any more than I already have. Are you drinking a Moscow mule? Is that what's I, going on? Yeah. I'm drinking a Moscow mule. Wow, that a, look at that. 
No, it's just like that's the official mug of a Moscow Mule. My, and so that's my wife's my grandma, sense. she got them for us for Christmas a couple of years ago, and I uh-huh. I wanted a Moscow Mule tonight. I don't know what to say. Yeah. See, what's weird is like normally only ever see you drinking those at the the Tuesday morning editorial meeting. So, <laughs> like this is it's kind of cool. Can I ask one question before we uh, we close? Absolutely. Last question. Yeah. So um, this is very important to me. Um, my lifetime goal is to be part of the Remnant Five Timers Club, and uh-huh. I have been um, uh, paused at three appearances. So I'm wondering if this can be counted towards that list. So like this would count as my fourth, or do is it just like Remnant and Remnant only? Okay. I'm trying so to a, a no, it doesn't count <laughs> at all towards the Remnant. And B, you did enormous damage to your chances of being on the Five Timers Club when you said that if you had been talking on the Advisory Opinions podcast, you would have called them the flagship podcast. Um, so but only I, because it, I would, they would have been the flagship, but I would have given you a bigger title, whatever is higher than flagship. Yeah. As it stands right now, the second I hit the little hang up icon on this, you're dead to me. And I <laughs> probably will never speak to you again. Um, but that's not true of our members of in the dispatch community. Uh, for the record, that is not my dog. My dogs are having their own issues. Um, and uh, I want to thank everybody for uh, tuning in, you know, how many of you there are. And, um, I, uh, and I, I'm not saying this to denigrate the Dispatch Live thing. It's just, it's August 9th. So I just assume that our attendance is kind of low. Um, and uh, people should check out uh, to see if they want to come to the uh, Naples conference. I think it's going to be a great time. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun and maybe even edifying and illuminating as well. And with that, I'm sure someone better than me will moderate next week. Uh, but thanks, everybody. Thank you, Andy Smerick. Thank you, Andrew Egger. And uh, thanks for tuning in to everybody else. <laughs>